We're going to discuss that feeling shame, which is one of the hardest really to talk about because of what it is, of the feeling that makes you want to hide, of the feeling that tells you you should have everything already uh, together in your life, but since you don't, it makes you want to retreat. Uh, I want to ask you to consider trying this. The next time you're sitting with an acquaintance, just the two of you, wait for a break in the conversation and then looking them right in the eye, say, is everything okay with you? Now, of course, you know what they're going to say, right? Oh, everything's fine. I'll let them talk for a little bit. And then at the end of whatever they say, they're going to ask you, why did you ask me that? And then maintaining eye contact, add, it just seems like something has been wrong lately. And then maintain eye contact. Nine out of ten times, they are going to say to you, how did you know? How could you tell? And they're going to say that because 90% of us are not fine. And what we do is we work at covering that up. Because not only do we want to be okay, we don't want anybody to know that we're not okay. We tell ourselves that we should have already managed everything. And because we haven't, we would rather appear to be okay than actually receive the help that we could receive from this friend there who cares about us. It is shame that makes us pretend we're fine when we're not. Instead of saying, I'm not okay, because everyone expects me to be, and especially I expect me to be, I say I'm fine. Shame makes me say I'm okay when I'm thinking deep down inside, I'm a failure in every way that matters to me right now, but I just can't say it. Does anyone in here relate to that? Shame makes me smile and nod when I'm lonely inside, and I've been driven into some kind of fantasy world of intimacy or power, which feels good for a moment, but then leaves me hating myself. It makes me turn everyone I know into an occasion for comparison, and I always come up short because their career seems better than mine, their kids are behaved better, they're in better shape than me, they're more financially secure, their vacation sure looks a lot better, as does the food which they photographed, and so... And so I'm okay. Uh, shame is when I tell myself, I should have already managed everything. Do you pick up on the acronym there? Should have already managed everything. It's the voice that says, you are the worst parts of you. And so that's all I see. And what happens when I deal with it in the way that all of us have learned to deal with shame, which is to hide it, is that I end up hiding my true self from the people around me, and I also end up hiding my true self from me, which means I can actually be suffering from mismanaged shame and not even know it. And if you're thinking this morning already, well, this message isn't for me because I'm perfect, I don't deal with shame at all, you may actually see yourself in the defensive strategies that I want to put before you this morning because shame not only makes us hide ourselves from others and from our own selves, but worst of all, it makes me keep distance between me and the God who wants me to come close because he loves me. And that really is the heart of the message this morning. The gospel for people who struggle with shame is that Jesus wants you to come close to him because he loves you. 
And he knows already all of the ways in which you're deficient, which you want to hide from him. But as long as you do, then you only hurt yourself because you keep distance from yourself and the healer who loves you and wants to make you brand new. And in his grace, he will do that, but only when you're able to come before him. And what we want, what I want, is for us to grow as followers of Jesus. That's really the reason to talk about feelings, only insofar as they keep us from following him. What we want is for each and every one of us to bring our whole selves to Jesus. We want to hold nothing back. We want to become people who are able to place our hearts into his hands, even when shame, especially when shame makes us want to hide ourselves from him. I have heard more than you'd imagine from people who love Jesus this statement. I can believe in his grace for everyone else. It's hardest for me to accept it for myself. Each and every one of you is invited this morning to see yourself standing before Jesus and to receive the grace that he alone has the authority and has determined to give to everyone who stands before him uncovered completely. The story that's going to teach us is a story that's told in the Gospel of John. It's a story in which a group of religious men have brought a woman who's been caught in a serious transgression to the place where she is forced to stand before a crowd and before Jesus. It is, in effect, a scene of public shaming in which, and I'm going to give the story away, in which Jesus decides not to condemn her, but rather to receive her and give her his grace. And what I hope for is that each of us, wherever we are, will be able to see ourselves in the story it's set in the morning in the temple where Jesus is teaching. And it's told in John chapter 8. Let's pick the story up in verse 2. Here's how the setting is given. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. It had become a routine at this point in Jesus' work to go to the temple early and to sit down and teach anyone who wanted to come and learn from him. The crowds had begun to become quite large because Jesus taught like no one had ever taught. The words that he opened up for the people were motivation enough for them to get out early before work began and come to the temple and sit down and learn from him. And that's what's happening here. They've gathered because he has something which they want. And as he begins to teach what they don't know yet, is that the lesson this morning is going to take an unexpected turn and it's going to be a lesson about shame. Verse three. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Here, everyone is gathered for the lesson. They're learning together when there is an unexpected intrusion. The scribes and the Pharisees are the religious leaders and the teachers of the scriptures in Jesus' day. They are men who have given their whole lives to understanding God's word and working at applying it to everyday life. Here they come, pressing through the crowd of students gathered around Jesus, and with them they have a captive. And in front of Jesus and everyone who's there to learn, they have thrust this woman who was caught in the very act of committing adultery. And so now she stands before all of their eyes. Every eye turns away from Jesus 
toward this woman as she stands before all with her very worst deed exposed before every single one of them. You can imagine, maybe, the shame that she would be experiencing in this instance. I wonder if you can relate to the feeling of being shamed in front of people whose opinions matter to you. That feeling of uh, a rush of heat into your body and, and an intense feeling of wanting to hide and get away from everyone who's looking. That's where this woman is in this moment. Can you relate to that experience? Either, and this is what happens to us, either from a memory when you're young and everyone was looking, or from the internal pattern that you have become really good at putting yourself in. That is, it doesn't need to be anybody else out there looking at you. You look at yourself in that way. Can you relate? There's something going on here that if we pause for a moment, tells us there's more than just a woman who's committed a misdeed and is now being questioned before everyone. Uh, look at what happens next as she stands there with all eyes on her. The, the, the Pharisees and scribes ask this question of Jesus. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? In two places in the law, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are prescribed responses to marital infidelity which teach God's people to take it with all seriousness. It is, in fact, in those ancient documents considered a capital crime because of the collateral damage that comes when marriages break down because someone's unfaithful. These men, in one sense, ask a legitimate question of Jesus because the word had, in fact, taught the people of God to take infidelity just this seriously. But when you pause and take the whole scene in, it becomes clear that maybe there's something more going on than these men wanting to know how to interpret and apply the law in this particular instance. Think about it from the perspective of a person there sitting and listening to Jesus. If what they really want is to know how the law applies here, why couldn't they wait until Jesus was done with his morning lesson? That makes sense, right? And why would they drag her in front of all of these eyes if all they really wanted to know is how Jesus would apply the law in this particular case? And, and those two are significant, but not as significant as a third very obvious fact, especially to anyone there who knows the law, which is if what they're really wanting to know is how Jesus applies the law from Leviticus and Deuteronomy to this case, why isn't the man here also? Because they'll all know, and anyone who knew the law knows this, that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's said that the man and the woman are liable to the same punishment. But here, it's the woman only. Why? You can see there's something else going on. John tells us in verse 6 that they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. That is, the motivation of these religious men is not, strictly speaking, adherence to the law, but instead, they have an aim against Jesus, and they've decided to use this woman to try to reach their goal. 
which is to try to have some charge to bring against Jesus for this reason. They want to end the ministry of Jesus. They want to stop his influence and derail his mission. They don't want anyone to learn from him anymore, but instead what they want is for this woman to be treated as an object which they can use for a different goal. She's been reduced by them only to her transgression so that she's no longer a person. All she is to them is her violation to be judged and rejected altogether. Now, if we put the story on hold right here, what we will see is that the manner in which these men are treating this woman is a picture of how we treat ourselves when we're swallowed up in shame. Think of it for a moment. The public shaming of this woman parallels in a dramatic way the manner in which the internal experience of shame for the person who's finding himself reduced to his own failures and rejected entirely because of them threatens to derail the mission and the ministry of Jesus. Let's, let's zoom in for a, a bit on what happens when we're feeling ashamed. Shame is the feeling of being seen in a painfully diminishing sense. It's exposure which awakens the possibility of being judged as unacceptable, rejected, and cut off. It's a self-consciousness that tells me I am fundamentally deficient in some vital way as a human being, and it is completely dreadful to feel. Can you remember feeling it? For me, it was freshman year in high school in gym class. I was ashamed of my body, and that feeling was horrible. And for, what, for whatever it is for you, maybe it's a failure that you've brought into church this morning and you, you hate that we're talking about this this morning because even though you say, no regrets, you have regrets and you look back. Or it's a character flaw that emerges at your worst and you hate it, but you, you don't want to look at it. And that's what shame does. It makes you want to bury it when we're little. We look to our parents to affirm our value. And, and some of us have had great parents who always told us we did great. Even you, if your parents always told you that you were the best, can struggle with shame because there'll be a voice in you that says, oh, if they only knew the real you, they wouldn't say that. Can anyone relate to that? Shame is so tricky. Uh, when the adults in our environment are not great, and they respond to us in ways that make us feel exposed and inadequate and threaten our sense of well-being, as some of you will have parents who are inadequate like that. Because you need to be connected and because you need to be received as you are by others, because God made you that way, when shame is the internal voice that tells us that we are fundamentally unacceptable, it is earth-shaking and shattering to be in that place. Now, if you are the kind of person who responds to your own failures with that kind of internalized self-reproach, then you know exactly what it's like to be the woman in this story. Please think about it. You drag yourself out in your own imagination before the judges, and you bring whoever you've decided to care most about into your imagination, and maybe it is your mom or your dad or your peers or your friends, or maybe it's people at church or the pastor some spiritual person who you admire. And each one of them forms a circle around you and they've all got their stones there ready to punish you for you. And, and you're the kind of person who says, throw the stones. I can believe in God's grace for everyone else except for me. 
And some of you, that's how shame has become central to your own identity. And what you need is to be delivered from that. Because if you're not, then it will derail the mission of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in your life, and you won't be able to hear what Jesus has to say to you. That's some of you. Others of you are here say, I don't deal with shame at all. No, I am so perfect, I could have checked out already from this message. What's wrong with this guy? Get over yourself. Do you know that shame is so painful and so tricky And many of us are so intelligent and accomplished, especially around here, that we will devise strategies to hide our own eyes from the shame which we deal with and we'll be driven by it, not even knowing that shame is beneath the surface for us. I want to be very specific here. Maybe you are constantly striving for perfection. Do we have any overachievers among us? Come on, let's be honest. Let's raise your hand. Higher than the other people. You're the best, right? At it. No matter how well you do, it is never good enough. So you work harder. You achieve this much and you say, I'm not satisfied. I need to achieve more. Why? Because you are so afraid of the shame you might feel if you weren't perfect, if you failed, that you are driven always to try to be even better perfect. Driving every perfectionist is the fear of failing and the shame that would be accompanied with that feeling. How do I know this? This is me. I'm telling you this morning, this is my, this is how I deal with shame. Yesterday, I went running for the half marathon that I'm training for. I'm not a runner. I pushed myself to run faster than I should have for eight miles, and then I couldn't run anymore. Why? Because I tell myself, I have to be faster. And that's what some of you do. Okay, maybe that's not you at all. Maybe you're not the perfectionist. Maybe for you, it's power that you seek. And maybe not power that everyone else can acknowledge, but what you do is you control everything, and everyone around you. Do you know a controlling person? Maybe beneath the surface for that person is the fear that if anyone uses their autonomy, it might expose something in me that I'm ashamed of, and so I control the environment and myself and everyone around me as much as I can because I need to control to defend myself against potential shame. That's the second way. Maybe it's neither of those. Maybe, maybe for you, it's pathological aggression. Have you ever met somebody who's friendly at first, but then as soon as you get too close, they become aggressive and they push you away? For that person, they need to frighten others off because the chance that someone gets close and exposes in me something that I'm not proud of can cause them to protect by being angry and filled with rage and defending themselves against the kind of vulnerability that might result in the uncovering of something that they're ashamed of. Maybe the most common strategy for religious people, seriously religious people, and I think we see this a little bit in the men who've brought this woman before Jesus, is to find a group of sinners who struggle with something that isn't your struggle and then to designate them as hateful and have contempt for them. When I judge others as wrong and nurture feelings of disgust against them, then I can protect myself against feelings of Uh, regret for my own issues. Having someone to look down on protects me from facing my own shame for my sin. Contempt protects me against shame too. These are just four. If you're in a discussion group this week, you're going to look at six different ways that shame can hide beneath defensive strategies. Here's what every one of us this morning, however we respond to our own deep senses of inadequacy, must face. In whichever way shame drives us, 
the end will always be to keep us away from the mission of Jesus. That's what happens. However we move away from our true selves to hide from others or from us or from Jesus, the, the outcome will always be the same. It will keep us from his ministry. It will make us so we can't hear what he's saying to us anymore. And that's really what those men who brought this woman before Jesus wanted. And that is exactly what happens inside of each one of us when our shame is mismanaged. So we're driven, we're controlling, we're aggressive, we're contemptuous, whatever we are. What happens is it separates us from Jesus. And what Jesus wants more than anything else is for every single one of us to be exactly connected with him. Listen to me now. Not once we become innocent, but even when we are caught red-handed, guilty of the worst of all things. That's when Jesus wants to stand with us face to face. Come back to this story for a moment. There is no hiding the fact that this woman is guilty, and she is. And there she is standing before Jesus and the rest of this crowd. And up until this point, the trial that she's been put under by these men has been a false trial. It's under false pretenses. They don't really want her to be judged. They're trying to end Jesus' ministry. But now Jesus is in the position of having to respond and his response is going to show us the gospel which we need to see. However we deal with shame, the gospel is what we need to see if we're going to become people who are able to put our hearts into Jesus' hands. Here is how Jesus responds to their question. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. His initial response to them is nonverbal. He doesn't start by speaking, but he behaves in a way that says something profound to every one of them. He bends down and he begins silently to write on the ground with his finger. He gives them some time to wonder if he knows what they're really up to, if he can see through what they're doing. And as he writes with his finger, he is saying something to them about the law which they have chosen to bring up against him. There are 613 laws that have come from God through Moses to his people. 603 of those laws were written by pen on parchment with the hand of man. Ten of those laws were not written on parchment, but were instead written on stone. Do you know what I mean? The ten which were given to Moses on the mountain were written on stone, and they were written with the finger of God. And as Jesus writes with his finger... He is saying to them, I not only know the law which you are using against me, I wrote it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how the gospel of John actually opens, introducing to us the character who is now bending down and writing in the sand with his finger to tell these men who they're dealing with. And you must understand that if you will hear from Jesus, you hear from God himself. You hear from the one who has the highest regard for the law because he's the one who brought it into being. 
And then after writing in the sand, he straightens up and he gives them this principle, which is for all of us as well. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And that is a word to all of the men who have stones in their hands. And it's a word which says, on the authority of the one who brought the law into being, here's the rule. The only person who is able to judge and execute judgment for the law, an infraction against God, is the person who is innocent. It's only the one who needs no forgiveness, who is permitted by Jesus to stand and throw a stone. And what that means, listen now, is something particular for everyone who wants to judge another person, and this is critical for shame, for everyone who wants to take the responsibility for judging himself or herself. Look at the response. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The departure is slow and steady, starting with the oldest first, because the older we get, the less we can trust in our own holiness. And as the wisest go, and then the less wise one after another also depart, because every single person knows that before God, they bear some guilt. And that's not the same thing as shame. Shame is the impulse that makes us hide our guilt so we pretend we don't have any. But guilt, genuine guilt, is the ability to say, yeah, I'm a mixed bag. I don't have it all together. I know that I've had all kinds of misdeeds in this life of mine. And the awareness of that leads each one of these men to depart, leaving Jesus and the woman all by themselves, just the two of them. So no longer does this woman have to feel the weight of the gaze of all of the other judges, but now it's just her and Jesus. And for the first time, she's in the position of the true trial, and Jesus responds to her in verse 10 in this way. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. His first word directly to her is not a question about why she did what she did. It's not a statement from Jesus to say, do you know how bad it is to commit adultery? Do you understand how awful that is for you and for the people around you, your family? He doesn't say any of that. What he does instead is he puts her in the position of telling him what has happened to all of the judges. He lets her share with him the observation that there isn't a single person in this entire circle who before the law of God is perfect. And therefore, I stand in some measure in the same place as all of those who would judge me. That's the first thing he lets her say. No one has condemned me, sir. And then Jesus speaks to her the word which every single person, every one of us, however we have learned to deal with shame, needs to hear in the moment where we allow ourselves to stand before Jesus and forget about everyone else and how other people look at us and even forget about how we have learned to look at ourselves. And what Jesus says, look at it. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Jesus 
does not condone her sin. That's why he says, do not do this sin anymore. Go and do not do this anymore. Jesus does not overlook her sin. He does not pretend it doesn't matter that she has done what she has done. The truth about all of us in here is we constantly underestimate the weight of the things that we do when we depart from God. But what Jesus does also not do is condemn her for her sin. And he does that for one and one reason only, because Jesus came not to condemn us for our sin, but to forgive us for our sins. And that right there is the very center of what Christian faith has to tell us, that Jesus forgives sin. That's who he is. The reason that Jesus does not condemn is when he came into the world, he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did that because that was the mission which he had from the Father. And so that means all of us are invited to stand right before him in his presence, aware of our own need for forgiveness, ready to let down our defenses against how we have always dealt with our shame, And wherever we come from, we're invited to bring our own failures before Jesus and standing there in his presence alone without all the other people whose judgment we might care about, our peers, our friends and teachers, our spiritual leaders, the good people who we admire, our pastors, ourselves even. We're invited to permit every one of these judges to depart and then to stand alone before Jesus. And there before him, we are invited to have a holy disregard for the assessments of everyone else, including our own critical voices. Because the gospel frees us entirely from having to refer to every other judge but one. Maybe no one knew this better than the Apostle Paul, which is why when he reflected on his own guilt, which he talked about in Romans very profoundly, that he always was doing the thing he didn't want to do. And when he reflected on his own experience of being judged by others, which he does in many of the letters he writes in the New Testament, he could still say, even as he struggled with disappointment and anger at himself for his persistence in these words from 1 Corinthians 4, look at them. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself, he could say. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul could set aside the judgment of others and even himself, not because he was innocent, but because he knew the gospel, which declares that Jesus is alone our judge and that Jesus alone is entirely gracious in his judgment of those who stand before him, uncovered and choose to trust his righteousness and mercy rather than forever trying to stand in their own achievements before God. Look again with me at what Jesus says to this woman. Neither do I condemn you? If you are willing to stand before Jesus without any effort at covering up the truth about you, and this, by the way, is for you and you alone before God. You, you maybe have hidden yourself from every single person and you've almost managed to do it from yourself too. But, but right now, if you're willing to stand before him and if you are ready to ask him for mercy for the ways that you personally have sinned, and you still do, then you are invited to hear Jesus' word to her as God's word to you personally. Neither do I condemn you. That is God's word to you. Jesus can say this because he came to set you free from your sin. He says it 
In earlier in the Gospel of John, in, in verse 317, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's Jesus' word. He goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that means whoever chooses to trust herself to Jesus has complete freedom from her sin and is completely free and made new altogether. He adds, the one who does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. What Jesus means there is you go on trusting in your own righteousness and you are still going to be completely stuck in your guilt. But all you need to do to step out of your guilt is to move toward the one and only one in this story who is the true judge and that is Jesus. And let me add this. Even though we will constantly be tempted in our shame to displace Jesus and become the judge of ourselves, we're not permitted to do that. Jesus does, in fact, step out of his place as the judge into the place of the judged. And that's why he can free this woman, because he knows he'll be judged for her sin when he goes to the cross. And he did that for all of us, so that we are completely and totally free. I think I heard someone mumble, amen. (laughs) Imagine you're in the presence of an acquaintance and that acquaintance and you are chatting and there's a break in the conversation and instead of you asking the acquaintance how they are, imagine that acquaintance is Jesus and he says to you, is everything okay with you? And of course, you respond by saying, yes, Jesus, things are fine. I'm okay. Why do you ask? And then Jesus says to you, because it seems to me like something's wrong. Now, don't hide. Don't. Uh, Don't cover it up. Uncover it in his presence. And here, in this silence now, imagine that that's you. And whatever it is, let him see it. Do that now. Let him see it. God of mercy and kindness, though we are afraid to be seen, we stand before you now. Give us hearts to trust that you receive all who seek mercy and forgiveness. Make our guilt before you plain to us and teach our hearts to trust in your grace which makes all things new let us rejoice in your renewal and restoration where we carry self-reproach because we have been mistreated give us the strength to believe in your love rid our minds of those voices that tell us lies about who we are Silence every demeaning word we speak to ourselves. Open our ears to your tender kindness. Where we hide our regrets in the dark, shine your light so that all of who we are is open to you. Where we struggle with shame, speak to our souls your word of acceptance. Though we hide, help us know your goodness which pursues us wherever we flee. Reassure us of the unshakable promise of forgiveness. 
restore to our hearts the joy of your salvation, so we may become a beacon to others, drawing those who are far off to your grace and mercy. In the name of Jesus, the King of mercy, 